thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome again to this Bible study on the book of Leviticus, and as usual, we're going to begin with a prayer. So please stand. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord, uh, we want to thank you and praise you and glorify you for this week that you've given us to live. We want to thank you for all the events that have taken place during this week, for all the good things and the things that were not as good. We thank you for it all, O oh Lord, and we ask you tonight to send your Holy Spirit upon us all, to open our hearts and minds to your holy inspiration, to listen to your holy word, learn from it, and learn to love you and serve you and know you more and more every day of our lives until we reach heaven. And we pray this according, we pray this um, by asking the intercession of Our Lady, uh, the one who most perfectly paved the way for us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. Joseph. St. Michael the Archangel. St. Maron. Please be seated. Currently, for those who are joining us uh, Today, we are in studying the book of Leviticus, and we're going to be covering, again, chapters 1 through, through 3. Last week, we looked at one of the offerings, one of the most important offerings, which is called the Ola, or the Holocaust, or the whole burnt offering. And what we found out is that in the sacrificial system of Israel, this was the first sacrifice to be offered. And the, pur- and the purpose of that sacrifice was so that the one who is offering it may be acceptable before the Lord. That was the only reason why that sacrifice was offered. Now, I'm going to come back today and show you in Scripture why that is the case and what it means in our lives. Today, though, we're going to continue looking at the three principal sacrifices the Ola that we, we saw already, and the, the next two called the Menha and the Zifa. The Menha, the gift offering, and the Zifa is uh, the sharing, if you will, the, the peace offering. Those are the three main sacrificial sacrifices that the Lord had uh, ordained. And then there are, other, uh, there are others which are used for expiation. 
Another thing that is worth repeating, when we speak of expiation, expiation means to pay for, if you will, to uh, redeem whenever you make a fault, you expiate it, you do something to essentially erase that fault. That's expiation. When somebody goes to prison, he's expiating his, his guilt, the, the, the evil that he has done, he's paying for in prison. What we said so far is that the entire sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus were for faults that were, that were involuntary or for faults committed without knowledge. None of it could be used for things that were done voluntarily, for things that were done with premeditation. You could not, in this case, rely on the sacrificial system to pay for it. You had to pay for it yourself. There were no substitutes. I, I do need to impress this upon you to, to help you really truly understand what Christ has done for us. And that, and that hopefully in that sacrificial context you better understand the words of Jesus Christ when he said, Amen, amen, I say to you, amongst the children of women there has not been one greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, that's why. John the Baptist had no access to confession. That's the bottom line. There was no grace flowing. None of it. There is a lot that we're going to learn from that principle, also the mystery of the salvation. Why us? Why not them? All those questions are things we're going to meditate on. Today, though, we're going to continue that study. First, I'd like to start by, as I said earlier, putting that Holocaust, the sacrifice of the Ola, in its biblical context. Those of you who have scriptures with you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. We're going to look at verse at two verses, essentially, 20 through 22. And actually, three, sorry, three. 8, 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So that word, burnt offering, is the same as a holocaust. It is called burnt offering because... Everything is burnt. You eat nothing. That's why it's called a burnt offering. He offered of every clean animal and every clean bird a burnt offering. Why did he do that? If I stopped right there, and if for a second, not continuing to read through Scripture, you were Noah or Noet. I don't know what the feminine of Noah is, but be it as it may. You are in that position. Why would you be offering a whole burnt offering in thanks, in thanksgiving? I would say exactly the same thing, Rich. I'm with you on that. Thanksgiving. Anybody else? Yes. Detachment of worldly things. Beautiful. Be accepted by the Lord. All right. Be accepted by the Lord. Penance. Okay. See, the beauty of it all is that we are so permeated by the mercy of Christ 
that that's how we think. You notice? Our mind immediately turns to that loving relationship that we have. Listen to what Scripture says, though, why he did so. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the imagination of man's heart is evil. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to a minute. I will never again curse the ground. What was Noah doing? He was pacifying God's wrath. That's why he was offering that whole burnt offering. What was paramount in his mind was God's wrath. Think about it. You're Noah. You just stepped on solid ground. You've been in that ship for six months. You're no mariner. And for six months, you had a whole bunch of animals with you. Bringing a couple of cattle and pigs and maybe a couple of chickens inside your house and keeping them for six months and let's talk about it. Okay? That was not your calling in life, right? For six months and then finally the water subsides and then you step out and you stand on the ground. And I think I put it out to you. Maybe I didn't, but if I... I don't think I did, but there is, uh, the, the, there is this... Um, uh, um, Marine archaeologist, the one who discovered the Titanic, he went into the Dead Sea and did some sediment study at the bottom of the sea that's fairly recent and determined that during the Bronze Age there was a massive, massive tsunami coming from the Mediterranean Sea with waves as high as 800 meters. 800 meters, that's 2,400 feet waves. And in fact, the, the, the Dead Sea was a, a sweet water lake. It turned salty after because of that thing that hit it. So the notion of a massive flood is not history fiction, not science fiction, I don't know what you call it, past science fiction, if you will. Something massive happened. So anyways, you just stepped on the ground and it's solid ground. What's foremost on your thought? Not again. Please, right? Yeah. Not again. So Noah makes a whole burnt offering, and his offering is found acceptable by God. So if you and I are standing here, we owe it to Noah. There's a debt of gratitude here for this man and his righteousness before God. So, that's why the Holocaust offering was offered. That's why. Right? Now, here's a couple of other pointers worth mentioning since we're on the passage. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Very tellingly, Scripture says, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Of all the faculties... Scripture singles out imagination and says that it is evil from his youth. What Scripture is saying is because of concupiscence, our imagination tends to evil. Therefore, as part of our formation, we must form the faculty of imagination. And if, it is, if there is one criticism we can make of the modern Educational system is precisely the neglect of the formation of the imagination. Why is it so important? Because 
imagination of all our faculties, imagination is the most angelic faculty in man. It is through the faculty of imagination and angelic beings are able to communicate with us. So, the more beautiful images you store in your imagination and you care and feed for them, the more beautiful music, music where harmony, where melody is, is really the heart of the music. Hmm? Melody, then harmony, then rhythm. In that order, unlike many modern musics which invert the whole thing, putting rhythm on top, think of rock and roll, think of jazz, think of all those things, and then downgrade melody to the bottom. When you put the right order of music, you have beautiful music, you have beautiful paintings, you have beautiful thoughts, then your garden angel can communicate with you easily. But the more ugly images you have in your mind, the more horror movies you watch, the more movies you watch that glorify ugliness, those images stick and stay and are now fertile grounds for the demons to communicate with you. Right? Anxiety, if you understand it spiritually, anxiety is correlated to an imagination that has gone wild. Hmm? Peace of heart is correlated with an imagination that is well-formed, peaceful. So often, for, especially for the young children, it is very important that when you consider whether they can watch a movie or not, to look at the beauty and at the ugliness in the movie and how affected these kids are going to be by it because these images will stay with them. The imagination of men's heart is evil since his youth and it needs to be corrected with the grace of Christ. It can be. It needs to be disciplined and formed to tend to what is true and beautiful. Because if we don't make imagination tend to what is true and beautiful, how could you think of Christ, who is beauty incarnate? God is true, therefore God is beautiful. How could you think of beauty if your imagination is a cesspool of ugly images? These things are related, and Scripture warns us of them. So anyways, back to this text. I will never again destroy every living creature, etc. So the promise is taken by God that he will never destroy all those things. And remember, the crossbow is shown. And the reason why the crossbow became the symbol of peace isn't very poetic. Actually, it's very military. It simply meant that God hung his bow. Meaning God is not going to war anymore. That's how it was. That's how they understood it. That's what the crossbow represented for them, and we'll only find the crossbow imagery again in the book of Revelation, where it is unhung. It is taken down. Right. So the relationship between the text that's read to you in Leviticus is fairly straightforward, but let's highlight some of the important points. Obviously, burnt offering is found here as it is found in Leviticus 1, the text we were studying. Clean animals and birds are offered by Noah. And the, obviously to Noah, there was no clean and unclean right at the time. So it is Moses retelling that event in Genesis who applies to it the terms of clean and unclean that means something to his contemporaries. 
so that they could understand that even Noah back then, the righteous one, only offered clean animals. He's highlighting that point. Now, as to why Noah did it, well, probably there are some very simple practical reasons. Clean animals are domesticated. As soon as that door opened, the undomesticated one took off, like zebras, I mean literally, or hyenas, right? As fast as they could. Besides, can you try and offer a lion? I, you know, it, it takes some work to do something like that, right? So practic- practicality indicated that he would offer the, 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 the animals which are domesticated, but more importantly, the animals that will feed him. In other words, those who are worth something. As I said last time, none of us would have any qualm offering a coyote coyote, because it costs us nothing. But go offer your dog, and let's talk about it. Let's see how you feel about offering your dog, not the old one that is kind of dying, the young one. Go offer that as a sacrifice, a whole burnt offering. He means something to you. That's a real sacrifice. That's what Noah did. Those are presumably two of the reasons. There may be others as well as to why Noah did what he did. So therefore, the Israelites saw that the burnt offering was a means of avoiding God's wrath when approaching him. They had a keen, a keen um, appreciation for God's wrath. We have a keen appreciation for his mercy. We need both. We need both. They didn't have a a supreme appreciation of His mercy, although the Old Testament has many, many, many passages that speak of God's mercy. Right? The Psalms, Isaiah, right? does, a, does a mother forget her child? Even if, you, if the mother forgets her child, I, will, I shall not forget you. Isaiah, right? I will bear you on, on eagle's wings. Isaiah. Many beautiful, merciful imagery of God's uh, mercy. And in the New Testament, there are some very harsh passages by our Lord, speaking of wrath. And if you want one, go to the book of Revelation. You'll get one. Right? So we just need to keep in mind that God is merciful, right? but mostly also God is just. And God can be wrathful against those who do not abide by His law. The second passage I want to point out to you is Genesis 22, 9, 13. About Abraham's sacrifice. I'm not going to read the entire passage. It is Genesis 22, 9, 13. And this is when Abraham sacrifices his son. The key, the key takeaway from this, which is not obvious. The key takeaway is that the angel holds back Abraham's hand when he brings it down. Because there is a ram that will substitute for Isaac. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? If there were no animals to substitute for Isaac, that knife would have gone down. If there were no sacrifice to take Isaac's place, that knife would have gone down. Why? 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 What I'm, why? Why that is a fact. Why is it that that knife would have gone down had there not been a ram to substitute for? The sacrifice will still have to happen. Why? Because every firstborn is consecrated to the Lord. Consecrated means given to God. 
right? Therefore, he's a sacrifice. Think about that about your own children. Think about that about yourselves. There is something to be said, especially for parents, about their relationship to their children. Parents must have what I call a loose end tenderness towards their children. They must remember their children are not theirs to own. Your children are not your children, really. They're your children by proxy. You don't have final ownership over their lives. Not when they're two months old, not when they're 50 years old. Never did, never will. It's an illusion. And we fall for it because of pride. Your children are God's. And it's a privilege, not a right, a privilege, it's a privilege for God to call for you and me in the duty of raising them up. But they are His children. If we were to all keep that in mind, there would only be very happy, there would only be happy ending stories about mother-in-laws. Your children are not your own. Like Jibran, Khalil Jibran in his poem, says, your children are like the arrows that you shoot forward. Your children live in the future, not in your present. You don't own them. God does. Right? That should help you temper, should help all of us temper any of our reactions to our children's future. And temper our anxiety. And temper our hopes. At the end of the day, our children are a mystery to us. They are only revealed in the truth of Christ. In good time. So remember that if there were no substitute, and ultimately that substitute is Christ, we would all be sacrificed. For there would be nothing between us and the justice of God. Therefore, none of us is owed heaven. None of us has a claim on heaven. Heaven is the mercy of God. His mercy, not ours. All right. Let's move on to the minha, the grain offering. That's Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1 through 16. Now, there are many ways in which you can prepare this offering in chapter 2 goes through them. The ingredients are usually the same in all these offerings. They're supposed to be the choice part of wheat. That is semolina, the heart of the kernel. That's what you're supposed to bring over and offer to the Lord. Now today, we go to the store and buy semolina. Back then, preparing it was done by hand. It took some work to do. Not an easy thing to get that thing, uh, get to it without the proper tools and everything else. It was mixed with olive oil, or olive oil was smeared on it, simply. And then frankincense was applied to enhance the taste. It could be prepared on a griddle, a pan, or in an oven. I hope you all had dinner. Uh, A fistful of the dough with the oil and frankincense added was burned on the altar. Now this, then, is not a whole burnt offering. Only a part of it was thrown on the altar and burnt. The rest was consumed by the priest. 
not by the one who offered it, but by the priest. It was the priest's part. And only within the tent, only within the space of the tabernacle. Priest could not take it, go stroll out and eat it. He had to eat it inside that sacred precinct. He could not eat it outside. All right. So the basic sense of this offering is that it's a gift. The Ola is simply to be found acceptable by God. Now that you've been acceptable, what do you do? You offer a gift. That's what you're doing. And the priest, as a representative, as a standing in for God, receives that gift and partakes in it. That's what the Ola does. It is really interesting to um, follow the type of verbs that you find in this in this chapter. Here, this is what Scripture says. You shall bring any grain offering prepared in any of these ways to the Lord. You bring it. You shall present it to the priest. You bring, you present, who shall deliver it to the altar. Bring, present, deliver. All right, where do we do that? You see where that offering comes from. The offering in the Mass is structured according to the Minha. Right? You bring it, you present it to the priest, the priest takes it to the altar. Yeah? So, if that Minha most fittingly maps to the presentation of the gift in the Mass, here's a question I want you to simmer on for a little while before we come back to it. What then, in the liturgical order, maps to the burnt offering. Think about that. All right. Verse 13, you shall season all your offerings with salt. So whether meat, so whether you do burnt offering, or whether you bring the cereal offering, you must season it with salt. Salt is a symbol and like most symbols in Scripture, is ambivalent. It has two faces to it. One face is, speaks of cleansing and of preservation. You used salt to preserve things, to prevent them, therefore, from rotting, from going bad. Therefore, you keep them pure. Hence, salt, in that sense, is an agent of purity. That's the good side of it. On the other hand, salt is also a symbol of desolation. Why? Because if a conqueror were to punish those whom he conquered, one of the worst punishments he could inflict is to sow salt in their fields. Because then nothing grows. Hence, salt is also a symbol of wrath, a symbol of death. Therefore, since salt in and of itself has both blessings and cursings, it becomes a symbol for the covenant. Therefore, when you salt your offering, you're reminded that that offering is done within the context of that covenant 
in which you've entered with God. Right? And let's remember again that a covenant has a strong party, God, a weak party, Israel, and that the strong party dictates the terms of the covenant and attaches to those terms blessings in case the weak party obey the, the, the covenant and curses in case the weak party does not obey the covenant. And I think I've pointed out multiple times, but it's worth repeating because we all have short memories, that this is how marriage is supposed to be structured. Marriage is a covenant. And a strong party, especially uh, here I'm talking, I'm not talking about civil marriage, I'm talking about religious marriage, and most particularly a Catholic sacramental marriage, where a man and a woman go to the church and invoke God's blessing upon their marriage. Well, when they do that, they are entering into a covenant with God. They're invoking God's name. Right? Remember, marriage is the only sacrament that the priest does not officiate in. The priest does not marry you. Right? You're the, the one who are actually marrying each other, right? So why is the priest standing there? Because he has no other place to go? No. He's standing in persona Christi, standing in the person of Christ. So now you have the strong party standing there. You have the weak party, not the woman, the couple. Right? The two of them. And basically what they're saying to God is very, very simple. We are sinners. We cannot hold on to the promises we're making because we're sinners. Our nature is imperfect. But we know that you, who is true and faithful, can make this happen. If you only underwrite our marriage. Put your divine name on it. Stamp it with your divinity. And our marriage will become what it's supposed to be. So then, God graciously, because of his mercy in the wedding of Cana and his mother, says, I will. So the first I do in a marriage isn't that of the man or the woman. It's God's saying, I do. He said it on the cross, but in a specific case, you invoked his blessing, and because he's gracious and true to his word, he says, I do. So he stamps his marriage with his divine name. And then you add the two weaker names to it, the man and the woman. Do you understand why divorce is an absurdity? Because divorce is purporting to break the divine name written on this covenant. We don't have the strength to break the divine name of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us do. Right? So, that is why, when you enter in that covenant, God is saying, if you stay true to that covenant, even if you're weak, even though you're sinful, even though you had issues, even though you may have difficulty uh, communicating, in spite of all of these things, I will lead you, transform you, turn you into what that marriage is supposed to be. And I'll bless you, bless your children and others through this marriage. Just because you're faithful. Leave it up to me, I'll take care of it. But if you're unfaithful to this marriage, then because you invoked my holy name, you desecrated my name. Curses will be triggered. And those curses will come in terms of uh, children who do not listen to you, children who have coldness of heart, people who, children who give you grief, you grow apart, 
marriage turns cold, there's nothing left of it. All those things are the workings of God in your heart because He's still calling you. He's still calling you back to Him. And if you're not going to listen, you know what that end is going to be. But the hope is that you will turn around and look at yourself first and say, Here I am, Lord. I've come to do your will. That's a covenant. Hmm? That's why salt was used, to remind the offerer, what are you doing? All right. So then, the minha is then salted. And by the way, what I told you about um, the fact that uh, uh, lands would be sowed or plowed with salt, well, that actually comes from Near Eastern Treaty, which had curses in them. So in the Near East whether it was the Akkadians or the Babylonians or, the, or, or any of the um, um, civilization at the time, they all used that covenant with blessings and curses. That's a structure that was fairly well known, and salt was prevalent as a sign of the covenant. Right? So it's not something that was only specific to Israel. It was something that were, they would be aware of, they knew of. All right. The next offering we're going to look at is the sacred gift of greeting, the peace offering, or the Ziva Shelamim. And that's Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1 through 17. That's the third, therefore, major sacrifice after the Ola and the Minha, after the Holocaust and the gift of greeting, or the peace offering. You have the third one, which is, I'm sorry, the gift offering, the third one, which is the peace offering. All right. As you, you probably know by now, there are overlapping features between the Ola and the Zepha, between the Holocaust and this third offering, which is an offering of animals. Some of the same animals are used for burnt offerings and for the Zepha. Obviously, they are burned on the same altar. The sacrifice happens on the same altar. And the blood from the sacrificial animal offered as a Zepha was applied to the altar of burnt offerings in different ways, but in the same spirit. And remember, every time you hear me say the altar of burnt offering, it is to distinguish it from the altar of incense, which is present inside the sanctuary, in the holy, right, where incense was burnt. So, there are differences. The Ola was entirely consumed by the altar fire, and in this way given over to God entirely. The Zephah was a sacred meal in which those who made the offering partook. The priests and the offerer partook of the Zephah. Where is the Zephah in the Mass? So you see how the Mass emerges from the sacrificial system of Leviticus and gives it its full meaning. Because in Leviticus, all those sacrifices, as we're going to see shortly in Psalm 50, have no impact. They cannot sanctify you. The Mass does. Because in the Mass, you are united to Jesus Christ, truly present in the body, as in His body and blood, soul and divinity, under the appearance of a host. Under the appearance of the host. But that is Jesus Christ, who said in John chapter 6, Amen, Amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the the Son of Man, and drink of His blood, you have no life in you. And He meant 
eternal life. That is the Mass. It's one thing for somebody to say, I love you, and I'm willing to share my bank account with you. Or, I love you, and I'm willing to die for you. But think of a baby. Have you ever had that sense that babies are so cute that sometimes you'd say, metaphorically, obviously, oh, you're so cute, I want to eat you? Mm -hmm. You you just, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And babies are nothing compared to how adorable the Lord Jesus Christ is. And he loves us so much that he wants us to be united to him in this way. You think we know anything about crazy love? No, we don't. Because crazy love is divine. All right, so we've seen two of those sacrifices then fitting into the Mass. We're going to talk about the Holocaust a little later. All right, I'm going to skip some of those passages because I want to turn to something a little bit more important. Here's one thing I would like to say to you about the Zephyr, which is kind of important. In Samuel, in the, letter, in the first book of Samuel, chapter 2, verse 12 through 16, we learn that it was forbidden, it was forbidden for the priests or the participants to eat the meat of the Zephyr before God, before God's share had been offered to him on the altar. That offering had to happen on the altar. Then you could partake of it. Okay? And in the case of Samuel, if you recall that event, uh, when Eli was the priest of Shiloh, his sons offered a Zephyr, but didn't wait for the meat to be burned on the altar. They ate before it, and that's provoked God's wrath. They were killed, and he killed back and died. Right? How is that mapping over to, our, to, to Mass? Why is that important? Because we are not receiving bread. We do not partake of the sacrifice of the altar before the bread and wine have been transubstantiated. Their substance has been transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Just as the meat is transformed from its natural state by the fire, so likewise, by the words of invocation of the priest, what you see on the altar with your visible eyes has been turned into a divine reality. Okay? And you can see how God is very jealous of this whole process because He knows that it is only through the liturgy that we will come to know who He is. At the end of the day, it is the liturgy that really, really matters. Right? And I'll have some quotation for you in a minute about that. All right. So, let's step back right now. That we've seen the three offerings, the Ola, the Minha, and the Zephyr. And reflect on those a little bit. First, St. Irenaeus, who was a doctor of the church, 4th century, tells of a tradition handed to him by his Hebrew teacher. Quote, the Hebrews said that the whole divinely inspired scripture may be likened because of its obscurity to many locked rooms in our house. 
by each room is placed a key, but not the one that corresponds to that room. So that the keys are scattered about besides the rooms, none of them matching the room by which it is placed. It is a difficult task to find the keys and match them to the rooms that they can open. We therefore know the scriptures that are obscure only by taking the points of departure for understanding them from another place because they have their interpretive principle scattered amongst them. So it's an image that his Hebrew teacher used to indicate to St. Irenaeus that you can't interpret scripture verse by verse. Like Scott Hahn said, text without context is pretext. Text without context is pretext. So, we have to interpret Scripture in light of the whole of Scripture. That's the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Another commentator, in in an introduction to a book called Commentary on Leviticus, states that the key in Genesis may best fit the door of Isaiah, which in turn opens the meaning of Matthew. And I would add, Isaiah and Matthew are both needed to open Revelation, right? as we've seen in the study of the book of Revelation. So as we engage in an integrated study of all these sacrificial sacrifices, we, we would do well to heed Origen's words when he said that, for my part, and because I believe what my Lord Jesus Christ has said, I think that there is not a jot or title in the law and the prophets that does not contain a mystery. Meaning that even these sacrifices that may seem so dull and dry actually are worth our attention because they contain a key to some other parts of Scripture. All right, let's see that. Leviticus is probably amongst the least read book of Scripture, amongst Catholics anyway. It is rarely directly quoted in New Testaments. At most, nine quotations by some account. But one verse... One verse, loving one's neighbor as oneself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18. And it stands as a centerpiece within Jesus' teaching about the law. He said two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbors as yourself. These sums up the law. So, all the sacrifices that are being offered by Israel were to satisfy these two laws. Love the Lord, love of neighbor. The sacrificial cult of Leviticus, though, provides the major framework for the letter to the Hebrews. We know from Hebrews that the reality of the law, that is, everything we see in the Pentateuch, the reality of the law is a shadow of the better things to come. Notice, Hebrews does not say does not say that the law is a shadow that will be abrogated later. Nowhere does Hebrews say that because Jesus Christ died on the cross and raised and went to heaven, therefore the entire sacrificial system is abrogated. It says it's a shadow for something that is better to come. Hence, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was in the Last Supper, truly instituted a new order of priesthood, much superior to the one found in Leviticus. 
And you will see a few chapters hence that as part of the ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests, guess what Moses did? He washed their hands and feet. Do you understand now why Jesus washed the hands and feet of his apostles? It harkens all the way back to the institution of the priesthood. He was instituting a new priesthood. And all the, first com- all the commentators, all the f- church fathers, everyone unanimously, if you find any common commentary of the first four centuries, you will see there is no disagreement that a new priesthood has been instituted. So God did not abrogate the priesthood and got rid of it. He instituted a new one with a new sacrificial system, the one and true sacrifice of Jesus Christ in heaven that died once and rose once for all of us, but through the agency of the Mass, that one sacrifice is made present. Is made present so we may also be able to Join in it. That is the reality that Jesus Christ has created. A priesthood that stands in his person, enabling us to be fed. For he indeed is the one who feeds us. Now, when we, we must therefore look at Leviticus as wrapped up entirely in Christ to understand it. Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not desired, but a body Hast thou prepared for me? That's in Hebrew, chapter 10, verse 15. That's what the writer of Hebrew says of Christ, saying to God, Sacrifices and offerings thou hast not prepared, but a body thou hast prepared for me. A body. What body is he talking about? What body did God the Father prepare for Jesus? The church. Exactly. Bingo. The church. Not the body of Christ. Not, I mean, his own body. The church is what is being prepared. Right? Elsewhere, St. Paul instructs us that the mystery hidden before the ages is this, that through the church, through the church, principalities and dominions shall be taught. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's essentially what it says. In other words, the angels are now taught Through the church. That is the mystery hidden since the foundation of the world. That's the power of the church that Christ instituted. And that's what he gave his apostles. That power. So now the book of Leviticus is then bound in the person of Christ. Just as the face of Christ is hidden in the book of Leviticus. That's why we can't simply ignore all the details. Because in looking at some of the details we're learning more about Christ about what he was trying to tell us. As we said a little earlier, the letter to the Hebrews locates the entire work of Leviticus in the body of Christ, the church. And this underlying reality, grasped by origin and made central in all subsequent Christian commentary, that is all the way up to the 16th century when the Reformation began and they started moving away from standard classic Christian teaching, includes not only the more obvious sacrificial system, but also the communal laws of Israel, familial and civic relationships. Now that's important. God in Leviticus isn't simply giving them a sacrificial system. He's teaching them to live 
as one family, as one ecclesia. That's the word we get. Ecclesia, community, family. He gives them civic laws, not because God is interested in civility, but because he wants to explain to them how they will all live with him in their midst. And we see that in the church. Origen reminds us that the letter is seen just like the flesh of the incarnate word, but hidden inside of it is the spiritual sense that is grasped grasped like his divinity. We can say the same thing about the Eucharist. With, the, uh, with your physical eyes, you only see, right? But by the power of grace, you know that that is not a simple piece of bread. Okay. The interesting thing about Leviticus now is that when it starts, it starts rather in a very odd form in chapter 1. It says, when any man, when any man, the word in Hebrew used is Adam. Adam, you know, is man. So when any Adam, he didn't say when any Israelite, when any man, it had already in it the seed of Catholicism, universality. Catholicos means nothing more than universal. It had that already in it, that the offering will be universal, that it will come not only from the Israelites, but others as well. And scripture bears that because you find that the offerings will come from the Midianites and the people from Epha and Sheba in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. For in every place a pure offering will be made to the Lord in Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. In every place. That was almost um, sacrilegious because you could only offer sacrifice in the temple. Yet Malachi predicted that in every place sacrifice will be made for the Lord. And is sacrifice made for the Lord today in every place for 2,000 years? Oh, yeah. So now, this brings us to the heart of the matter. What is a sacrifice? Why is God so interested in a sacrifice? As I told you last time, sacrifice comes from the Latin, sacra facem, or sacra facens, which means doing a holy act. To sacrifice is to do a holy act. So often, so often we focus on the suffering. Oh, sacrifice means suffering. No, you can suffer without making any sacrifice. Doing a holy act, that's what a sacrifice is. Prayer, loss, suffering for God's sake, ourselves or for others, can be a sacrifice. Strictly speaking, sacrifice is the destruction of a valued, sensible thing which a priest offers to God in worship to show forth his almighty power. It is the highest act of adoration. The highest act of adoration. And that is the amazing intuition of St. Therese of little child Jesus. Right? Little things. Just little things. If you did every little thing in your day, in a way of saying, I love you, Jesus, this is for you. Somebody speaks to you abruptly and you smile back, even though you feel like crying. That's a sacrifice. There is a task to be done at home. It hasn't been done. You go do it on your own without looking for a reward. That's a sacrifice. You have to do it as a conversation with God. It isn't enough just to do it because, oh, well, you know, you're stoic. You're strong. That means nothing. 
you're doing it as a conversation with God. Your day should be spent like that. That's the little way of St. Therese. There, I saved you from reading a book. Just kidding. You should read the book. Nahmanide, who was a very famous Hebrew commentator, noted, paraphrasing Ibn Ezra, who was another one, that the image of the sacrifice encompasses Adam. God commanded that when man sins and brings an offering, he should lay his hands upon it in contrast to the evil did, deed committed. So now he's contrasting. You're bringing a sacrifice, you did something. This is for the retribution. You did something bad. You bring this and you say, I am offering this a sacrifice. You're showing that you're doing it in contrast for the evil deed that you did in secret. Yeah? <clears throat> and he should burn the inwards and the kidneys of the offering in the fire because they are the instruments of thought and desire in a human being. That's why the kidneys is mentioned over and over. It isn't because it has something special. It was back then thought to be sort of the brain. Right? The, the, the heart of the thinking process was there. Hence, it really represented rationality. That's why it was burned with the fat. That is, all the protection that you had. And, you know, people always thought back then, if you had fat, you could be healthy. You could live longer than somebody who's skinny. So that's why you also offered that. He should burn the legs since they correspond to the hands and feet of a person which do all his work. He should sprinkle the blood upon the altar, which is analogous to the blood in his body. All these acts are performed in order that when they are done, a person should realize that he has sinned against his God with his body and his soul, and that his blood should really be spilled and his body burned, were it not for the loving kindness of the Creator. You see, in many ways, our spiritual sense is dulled. It is dulled because we truly don't have a profound appreciation for what God has done for us. So what do you think God does in order to sharpen our spiritual sense? Let me put your question to you slightly differently. Suppose you have a kid who has been eating caviar every day and couldn't care less about caviar or any refined food. His sense has been dulled. What do you do in that case to rekindle his interest or to make him aware of the good things he had in front of him? What do you do? You take them away. All right. So God, as a loving father, does the same thing with us. What does he do? He allows us to wallow in some habitual sin for let's say, 10 years. Then, he gives us that grace to ask for forgiveness. So, we learn to go to confession. And then we learn to go to confession every week. And then, we increase our prayers. And we start doing a whole bunch of things trying to fix the problem. We get into over-functioning mode. We're going to fix the problem. What does God do? He extends it for another eh, 10 years. And in those 10 years, what do we learn? Not only we're not in control, not only we're not, yeah, but we learn something far more important than the fact we're not in control. We truly come to appreciate God's mercy. Because as we recognize 
the depth of our sinfulness, we become more and more amazed by the depth of His grace. That He is so patient with us and willing to stand by our side and never let go of us, never get tired by us, never wanting to send us away, never be disgusted by us, even though we may be disgusted by ourselves. And then progressively, we learn to see ourselves as He sees us. I do not judge myself, said St. Paul. He learned that lesson rather quickly, which is really impressive. Three years he learned it. That's amazing. Some of us, as I said, 20, 25 years, 40 for others, you know, we take our time. But that's what God does. But remember, it is his grace that sustains us. Truly, he allows us to fly on eagle's wings. He holds us in the palm of his hands and he holds us through it all, but allows us to learn about who he is, because God doesn't want puppets. God is not interested in, in creature he can manipulate. God wants free human beings to come to him in love. And he makes it possible. And now I have absolutely no idea why I told you all that, which is rather bad, because now I have to go back and figure out how to connect it to whatever I was reading here. All right. St. Augustine tells us that sacrifice was revealed for five reasons. Acknowledge God as a creator and master of life and death. First, recognize God as a creator and master of life and death. Recall blessings on us and our ancestors. Blessings on us and our ancestors. Excite our devotion. Keep us from idolatry. And then foretell the sacrifice of Christ. These three sacrifices that I pointed out earlier... The Ola, the Minha and the Zephah, the, the whole burnt offering, the gift and the peace offering, form in a very simple way the principle of hospitality. The three basic principles of hospitality. Really think about it. Right? When you go see somebody, what do you do? You bring with you what? A gift. Now, that gift you bring with you, do you expect and demand that the person receiving you share it with you? You don't. So to you, it's a whole burnt offering. It's gone. Yeah? You see that? You're bringing a gift, right? Because you're... Well, in one sense, you don't want to incur anybody's wrath, particularly if you're going to see your mother-in-law. Just kidding. But what I'm trying to say is that you're bringing a gift, right? And in ancient times, if, for instance, when, uh, when Jacob met Esau, what did he do before the meeting? When Jacob met Esau, right? Remember in the book of Genesis? He sent forth a whole caravan of gifts. So to, to why? To avoid his brother's wrath. So the offering of gift is also for peace, right? Okay. Then you walk into the house, and in some cases, here, for instance, you do these potlucks, right? So a potluck is something that you're bringing in, and you're going to partake of and participate in. Right? That's your minha. Right? And the zephyr also falls in the same territory. Sort of 
these, the sacrificial sp uh, structure in Leviticus may sound strange to us because we don't know how to really read it. But fundamentally, what God is saying in a very b basic principle is, I am going to be living amongst you. So the first thing you need to understand is, my divinity, the holiness of God, cannot, cannot coexist with sin. In order for that coexistence to happen for the time being, you are going to substitute something for yourself. And I give you this right because I love you and I am merciful. So when you bring this animal over, it is essentially so that God's wrath or the application of his divinity in justice may not happen. Then, the second thing you do is simply being gracious. Recognizing all the things that God did for you, and you offer the minha. And then the third thing, now that God allows you to be in his presence, what do you do? Well, you have a party. You share a meal. That's what's going on here. By the way, in many ways, that's the Mass. That's the Mass. Right? When you go to Mass, the Holocaust has already happened. When did it happen, by the way? Obviously, when Christ died on the cross. That was a whole burnt offering. He offered everything. He died for us. That's true. But there is another Holocaust that happens as well. In your own lives. Do you remember? Do you know when? Not confession. Baptism. Baptism, you die. You are offered as a whole burnt offering. Right? And some of the offerings, by the way, the food is boiled in water. So water plays an element in that sacrifice. In some baptism, you're immersed in water. You're offered as a whole burnt offering. God accepts you and brings you back from death because Christ's sacrifice substitutes for your own. That's your holocaust. It happens in, in baptism. That's always a good thing to remember at the end of the day, especially with, if you know friends or women who are contemplating something like contraception or tell you, well, you know, it's my body. If they are baptized, you could politely and gently remind them that it is not their body. Christ paid for it. And he paid the price with his own blood. That is his body. He paid for it. And then, now that you are cleansed, now that you can stand in front of God, you go to Mass. What are you supposed to bring with you at Mass? I'm going to tell you. Don't tell me. That's one of my pet peeves. The one buck chuck is my pet peeve. One Dollar is all that these people can put in that basket. One dollar. Now, I can understand that people who are poor. I can understand that. I'm not going to judge anybody. But I don't think that 90% of the parish is that poor. One dollar is what they bring with them. Here's what I want you to do. If you know friends who bring a dollar to Mass, tell them this. Next time, you go visit your friends, your mother-in-law. When you get to the house and they open the door, give them a buck. Let's see how that goes. 
Just let's see how that goes. Now, they're going to feel insulted at all, right? They're going to feel very happy you give them a daughter. They're going to take it and, and, and frame it in their living room. Okay, I'm just getting off my horse. This is one of my... Anyways, you, you get my drift. Think about that when you go to Mass. It's not about the priest. And it's not about how much the priest makes. It's none of that. Because if you're asking these questions, you'd be somebody going to a wedding... And you're asking your neighbor, hey, how much do you think that waiter is making? It's not your business how much the waiter is making. You're here to celebrate a wedding. Stay focused. All right? Think about that. What are you doing? A buck? Really? I already said that. Okay. All right. Then, now that you brought your gift... God gives you the bread of heaven. The bread that comes from heaven that feeds you and prepares you for eternal life. That's the Mass. So again, try to live your week as a preparation for the Mass and in thanksgiving for the Mass. And think about offering sacrifice. And I'll end with this one word, one quotation, and it's very, very short if I can find it, which is here. Once St. Teresa of Avila was overwhelmed with God's goodness and asked our Lord, how can I thank you for all the things that he did for her? Our Lord replied, attend one Mass. That's how you, Thanksgiving, Eucharistos, the Eucharist, Thanksgiving. Attend the Mass if you want to thank God. Questions? Yes. A very good question. Does the burnt offering still apply today? Yes, absolutely it does. Um, the burnt offering uh, applies today because we are all, every single one of us, is supposed to be a burnt offering. Our lives are supposed to be a burnt offering into the Lord. In other words, we give God everything. We keep nothing from Him. That's the burnt offering. Mm, no. We could take the cookie out of the cookie jar and burn it. It's not going to do you any good. I mean, yes, maybe it's your favorite cookie in the whole wide world and you're burning it. I can understand that. But just because it's a cookie, no. There are other things you can do. The best kind of offerings in the sense of the burnt offering you can do is avoidance of sin. Is kindness to others. If, let's say, you tend to speak with a sharp tone to somebody, Try to smile at that person. That's a much better offering. Much more pleasing to the Lord. Yeah? Okay. Yes. Question is, little things, of the, the, the way of, of, of St. Therese, little child Jesus. We said the little things. Well, what does it really mean in practice? How do you make sure that what you're doing is an offering to God? Very good question, because obviously it doesn't begin with that little thing. Right? Uh, let me put it you in context that, you, that will make it really easy to understand. Um, suppose you fall in love, right? And the man you love likes, I don't know, what can he like? Broccoli. He likes broccoli, right? Well, when he shows to your door for dinner, can you on the spot remember, oh, he likes broccoli? No. 
you thought about it beforehand, and you waited for the occasion, and then you did it. Right? Well, the same thing happens here when you're doing those little things. You know that those little things are the sort of things that the Lord likes. So therefore, you need to know what He likes. Absolutely. If, if it's hard for you to do it and you do it, you made Him happy. And by the way, don't pay any attention to emotions. You may be boiling inside. It doesn't mean you didn't do it. You actually did it. Yeah? Yes. But it takes that knowledge, oh, and that looking for the occasion. Those two things... Together, it becomes habitual over, at one point, right? Okay. Yes. Very good. The question, is there any connection between Passover and the sacrifices of Leviticus? In particular, when, we, when they speak of a female or a male, uh, I think it was um, um, goats, I think, not lambs. Um, what's the connection here? Well, the sacrifice of Passover, right? At Passover, when they have to, sacri- to, to celebrate it, it is actually a zephyr because it is a sacrifice that everybody shares in, right? But eventually, the, what they will add to it to, in, a, in, a, in a temple, in some of the feasts, we'll look at them. There are also whole burnt offerings added to that sacrifice. The male and female aren't, aren't an, um, an option for a whole burnt offering. They're an option for the zephyr, the meal. You can go one or the other. And in that regard, not all of these details are fully understood today because they are contextual and we don't have the full context. And some of them are obscure. But the, but the idea is that for some offerings, the, you, only had to, you, you had to offer what had the highest value. And for others, you had more choices. That's the general idea behind them. But there are more details to it. And not all of it is really clearly understood today. But definitely... The sacrificial system you see here will be applied to all the feasts, not just Passover, but all the, all the you know, unleavened bread, um, the, the f- first food, trumpets, uh, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, all of, sac- all of the high feasts of Israel relied on the sacrificial system you see in Leviticus. Yeah. Yes. I don't think there is. So the question is, the oil being used in the minha, the second offering, is there a connection between it and baptism? Oil in general is used for consecration. So when Aaron will be consecrated, oil will be used. When a king is consecrated, oil is used. So oil was always used as a form of as as means of consecration. But I don't think there is more more relationship between it and the minhar relationship to baptism. Right. So you get you mean the confirmation? Yes. Yes. So the um, baptism, confirmation, and in fact, even First Communion in some of the Eastern churches, also the Orthodox Church, are done together. And there is reasons why they were done together, right? But I don't think there's a relationship between that and the Menha. I don't see it anyways. Yes. So the Temple of Jerusalem was the seat of the Old Covenant. It was the seat where the sacrifices of the Old Covenant was performed. When Jesus came, he abrogated the Old and started the New. Therefore, the thinking is that since he is a merciful God, he would not wish for the Jews to remain stuck in the lesser covenant. He would want them to go to, the, to life, which is the Catholic Church. 
Hence, the thinking is that he would not allow that to happen out of his mercy. The, the, his wrath would be to allow for that temple to be rebuilt because then he would prolong the confusion and allow them to think that they're doing what they're supposed to do even though since his coming, that was completely abrogated. Right? That's why the, relying on his mercy, you would be tempted to say, no, it would not happen. Yeah. Yes. Well, that particular saying, I will destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, he was truly speaking of his own body. However, remember that the temple of Jerusalem is in of itself a microcosm. It represents the entire universe and it also represents, symbolizes Jesus Christ. So when 70 AD came and the Romans destroyed that temple, they destroyed a universe, so to speak. In other words, a covenantal age was passing. And it, they mirrored the destruction of the body of Jesus Christ. And with the end of the sacrificial system in that temple, the church was, truly, uh, was then truly able to flourish. Because in the first age of the church, as recorded in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, the thrust of the persecution wasn't coming from the Romans, it was coming from the Jews. So when that ended, the church was able to flourish and the new covenant took on the life that we know. Yes. The question is, when you make the sign of the cross, should you use three fingers to make that sign of the cross? You'd use five or two. All right. Three is a sign of the Trinity. Yes. Five is a sign of unity. It is a sign of the law renewed by Christ. Right? Two, right, which is the way I prefer, is the sign of Jesus Christ. The two nature joined together. Bottom line, these are signs to do what? That we're not, no, not going to fall into superstition here. We're not doing this because there's formalism, right? You should do it this way. That, no, you're doing it to what? To be in conversation with God. So when you do it one way or the other or the third, think about why you're doing what you're doing, right? If somebody becomes so formal, well, he's missing the, the whole thing. We're back into Leviticus. Uh, yes. Very good question. Thank you for bringing this up. So my point was, you, there is a person who knew And the reason why I'm bringing that particular example is because this was one thing that St. Therese in her book mentions about one particular sister that she could not stand. And she offered her her most beautiful smile. And the best part of it is after her death, as they were going through the process of canonization, that sister had absolutely no idea that it was her. So when she found out, it was like a gift to her from St. Therese. It's really beautiful. Okay, when I'm saying boiling, I don't mean that you're about right, to launch 24 surface-to-surface missile at that person. I don't mean you're swearing, you want them dead. You're, that's not what I mean. I mean you're just irritated. Like you have a physical reaction, let's say. You just can't stand it. It's you. But you're not in your mind forming thoughts of hatred and against that person. You just wish you, you were somewhere else. But you're not somewhere else and you're genuinely trying to smile. You're making a real effort. Yeah, God appreciates that. You're, it's not just you're trying to make peace with that person. You're making a gift. You're doing it because it pleases him. Not because of the end results. There's a subtle difference here. You're not looking for results. 
You don't know if there's going to be results. You're just doing it because it pleases him. That's the key. Yes. Very good question. When they offered it the proper way, was it accepted by God? Yes. Because it is God who's setting that for them. He's basically saying, I know what your problems are. If you just did that, I will accept it. Because of my mercy. So that's a beautiful question because precisely it shows us how through the whole sacrificial system, God is showing forth his mercy. That even though they may be coming, even though they may not be happy about offering that beautiful bull over there, they're counting their losses, all the intentions and everything else, but just because they did it, it was acceptable. Very good question. When we want to make sure that God is forgiving us for something we did on purpose, now that's a different story. There we require God's pardon. So therefore what we bring to him is what? Our contrition, our sense of sorrow, that we've done something we shouldn't have done. And that he accepts. That's a sacrifice. Yeah? Okay. Yes. Okay. So that's a follow-up to the other question. In Christianity, by the way, the sign of the cross is a blessing. That's why we do it. We're blessing ourselves. Right? It's found multiple places in Scripture. Ezekiel, when the angel goes to the town, and he actually seals off the people of God, he puts a taw on them. It's a Hebrew letter that is in the form of the cross. In the book of Revelation, the same thing happens. Right? So we're signing ourselves with the sign of the cross. Now that has two meanings. The Latin one, we go our fa- in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Right? We go from the head to the belly. God, who was in heaven, came down to earth. And then we go left to right. And he took sinful Adam... And saved him. Yeah? Okay. Then there is the other way. Name the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We go from right to left. And in both ways, we're affirming the dual nature of Christ. He came down from heaven, from the divine to the human. Both are beautiful. Both works. But what is more important than the symbolism is the thought behind it. What we're learning and our love to Christ. Yeah? Okay, last question. Is that what the question is? Is a civil marriage valid in the eyes of the church? Okay. Catholics are... So if they are Catholics and they're getting married outside the church, two Catholics married outside the church, I need to get back to you on this one. I can't tell offhand. My suspicion is that it is not considered valid in the eyes of the church. Well, that's, the blessing is a different story, right? We'll get to it in a minute. But I don't think it's even considered a valid marriage. So if they consider themselves Catholic, then, meaning the next week they go to Mass, right? It's not, a, it's not a valid marriage. You with me? Okay? Now, it could be that they're confused. They don't know. There are many, right, um, conditions for that. However, remember, a civil marriage for, let's say two non-Catholics are married. Is the church considered as a valid marriage? Absolutely. It's a valid marriage. A Catholic and a non-Catholic get married outside the church. Is that considered a valid marriage? It is considered a valid marriage. It's a, absolutely. Two Catholics, no. That's why. Right? Okay. But there is a fundamental difference between a civil, a non-Catholic marriage, and a Catholic marriage, which is that in the case of a civil marriage, they simply have not opened themselves to receiving the flow of graces that you would receive in a sacramental marriage where God opens up the gates of heaven, so to speak, and floods that marriage with his graces. 
that is not made available to them because they chose not to receive them. Right? Hence, the importance of catechesis and explaining to tr- people the real value and meaning of, the, of those things. So today, there's so much confusion. People think it's just a piece of paper. Right? They don't see the covenantal aspect of it. They don't see the fruits of Christ dying on the cross flowing through his church. They don't see any of this. That's why. Yeah? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.